So the Naval Academy does have a, a new time prayer. And the First Amendment, as we're all aware, says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Listening to the theme song from the 1960 movie, Exodus. The story of Exodus is a central narrative in the holy scripture of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Elements of the story appear in many texts in the Bible and the Quran. But we're not here to preach the gospel. We're here to talk about religion and the free exercise and establishment of religion based on the Bill of Rights. Welcome to the third in the series on the Bill of Rights and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. I'm your host, Michael Sears, from the Stockdale Center at the United States Naval Academy. On June 4th, 1768, five Baptists were arrested and charged with being disturbers of the peace, guilty of ramming a text of scripture down every man they meet on the road. They were tried a month later, sentenced, and marched off to the Old Stone Jail. Most of them remained in jail until September 5th, 1768, when they were released. At the same time in the state of Virginia, the Anglican Church was the state church. Anglican clergy were employed by the government and acted as teachers, becoming officials of the state. In his years as a young Virginia legislator, James Madison became keenly interested in the efforts of Baptist preachers who were arrested for not having an Anglican license. The James Madison we know and revere today as one of the country's founding fathers and key figures in establishing and ratifying the Constitution in 1791 had an intense change of heart and would find pre-revolution Virginia's Anglican state religion foreign to the United States he helped create. Madison, like many in this country after victory over Great Britain, championed above all else life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The tyrannies of King George III convinced the founding fathers that an individual's rights and liberties were sacred and not to be infringed upon by the government. By the time of the 1787 Constitutional Convention and throughout the ratification process with the introduction of the Bill of Rights, Madison and the founding fathers viewed an established state religion as a denial of a citizen's right to exercise his or her own freedom of conscience. To James Madison, the idea of religion goes much deeper than how one does or doesn't practice. He called conscience the most sacred of all property. And like a good scholar of John Locke, Madison felt strongly that one's property was a natural right.
In episode three of the Bill of Rights series, we examine freedom of religion as guaranteed by the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. Like always, we are joined by a distinguished panel of historians, legal scholars, and judge advocates, or JAGs. We'll break this episode into the two clauses created by Madison and his peers, the Establishment Clause and the Exercise Clause. We ask, what factors led the United States to embrace these concepts? Have we ever been a truly secular nation? How has the relationship between government and religion changed over time? And lastly, how are we to understand freedom of religion as members of the military? Let's begin our discussion by breaking down and discussing the Establishment Clause. What is the historical background behind the Establishment Clause? What are the ideas that influenced the Founding Fathers, and how are we to understand its effects on all citizens? This is Professor Mary DeCredico, Department of History at the U.S. Naval Academy. One of the things, and you see this in the Declaration, and then it's carried out again in the Constitution, one of the things that the founders were deeply concerned about is that the King of England was also the head of the church, head of the Anglican church, and that dates from Henry VIII. And so one of the specific things that the founders set down in the Bill of Rights is separation of church and state. It wasn't entirely clear in the Declaration, but they make it abundantly clear in the Bill of Rights that there is a separation of church and state. Really, Jefferson is the one who took the lead on this with his emphasis on religious toleration, uh, the pamphlet he wrote on religious freedom in, in Virginia. And it's also, I think, a reflection, and again, it gets back to the Enlightenment. Most of these men were deists. The idea of established religion really didn't resonate. If you're familiar with the Jefferson Bible, it's tiny. And it's because Jefferson rewrote the New Testament and took out every miracle that Christ performed. Again, this is reflecting his, his deist notions. And I think there was real concern as a result of the English Civil War, which was fought over religion, that we didn't want to have that take place in this country. Now, here's where the colonial experience is instructive. New England, right? The pilgrims, that's why we have Thanksgiving. They flee England because of religious persecution. And of course, what did they do once they get to Plymouth Rock? They persecute. Unless you're a Puritan, you are persecuted, which is why we have Rhode Island, quite frankly. Roger Williams is a dissenter, and so he establishes a free colony in Rhode Island that practices religious toleration. Same holds true for Maryland. You had St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in France. The French Protestants, the Huguenots, are going to flee. Basically, Lord Baltimore asks for a charter to establish a colony in Maryland where Catholics are allowed to practice religion freely and not be persecuted. So you see with the different colonies they're founding how religion plays a role, which I think reinforces what the Bill of Rights says is this very strict separation of church and state so that we don't have religious wars as Britain and the continent did. But again, it's ironic because in the 1850s, the United States declares war on the Mormons. And we fight the Mormon war out in Utah territory because we're against polygamy.
David Luban. I'm a professor of law and philosophy at Georgetown University Law Center. And I also have the uh, honor and privilege of being the distinguished chair in ethics at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You know, one of the questions, what does it mean to establish a religion? Well, we know that it would be establishing a religion if the state passed a law saying, uh, let's say, Presbyterianism is the official religion of the state. Okay, but what else does it involve? Well, it might involve the state broadcasting religious messages. Now, if the state says, um, you know, we are going to put the Ten Commandments up in the courthouse and say that that is the official morality that underlies all the laws of this country, that is broadcasting religious message. And uh, if you look at it there, the first commandment uh, says, uh, I am your God, and it means the Judeo-Christian God. And the second commandment you know, says, you will have no other gods before me. I mean, I'm a jealous God. Well, what does that do to the Hindus who have a lot of other gods before that one? So there's no question that that would be a religious message. But the complication is that the Ten Commandments isn't just a religious document. It's something that has a lot of historical significance. So with Kentucky, what was really interesting was that there were two cases on the same subject, the Ten Commandments in public uh, property decided the same day by the Supreme Court, and they came out in opposite ways. Um, in Kentucky, where the Ten Commandments have been put up in the courthouse, uh, the Supreme Court very narrowly divided a five to four vote, said um, that's establishing religion. You're broadcasting a religious message. Uh, the same day, a case involving whether the Ten Commandments could be put on display in the Texas State Capitol grounds, once again, five to four going the other way. The court said here, there's a secular purpose of showing a big piece of Texas history. It's not just a religious message. So there's a secular reason for putting it there. And that's okay. And there have been, you know, there have been other cases in which um, wrestle with that. I mean, to me, one of the oddest was a case um, in which a town in Utah put up a um, allowed the Ten Commandments to be put up on public property, and then a little minority religion called uh, Summum said we want to put up our seven commandments, our seven rules in an equally big display right next to the Ten Commandments. And their rules were, uh, they were a little strange. The first one was uh, everything vibrates. And the town said, sorry, we're not going to take that. And the Supreme Court was asked, uh, well, are we, are we saying that one religion is right and Summum's religion is wrong? And the court's not going to say that. They said, no, the Ten, the ten Commandments was historical secular, and Summum's is religion. We now turn to Lieutenant Commander Elizabeth Jarzik to describe what is commonly known as the Lemon Test. In the Lemon case, right, it's Lemon v. Kurtzman. It's from 1971. And the court kind of sets out this three-factor test to decide whether or not something the government is trying to do is impermissibly establishing religion. What they're going to look at and say that a law is constitutional if it has a secular purpose, it neither advances nor inhibits religion, and it does not foster an excessive government entanglement 
with religion. And that last one is really the key here, right? Is the government getting overly involved in religious affairs by virtue of what they're doing? So the thought was the prayer at the beginning of a legislative session, right, several months long, is probably not excessive entanglement. Dr. Lubon, can you offer expectations on what the future of the Establishment Clause looks like? Well, I think that the last few years have seen um, the Supreme Court becoming more and more sympathetic to uh, the claims of religion against uh, against other rights. And uh, uh, I think that what you're going to see is more of that. I've, um, I am guessing that when the, the Colorado Bake Shop case returns to the Supreme Court, that the baker is going to win. I think that uh, conscience opt-outs for other professions. If they come to the court, then uh, uh, the conscience opt-out is going to win. I think that um, we another case this term was about uh, uh, whether the state can give money to religious schools, and the court said yes. And I think that if you if you see that as part of the wall between separation church and state, then a couple more bricks have been taken down uh, from that wall. And uh, this is a court that is uh, that is very sympathetic to the claims uh, that religious exercise are really about as fundamental a right as we have. The issue of the Establishment Clause appears easier to understand on the surface regarding the U.S. military. If the federal government cannot establish a state religion, neither can the military. But let's now shift gears and examine the Establishment Clause within the context of the UCMJ. How are we to understand the separation of church and state when things like noon meal prayer or prayer broadcast to the entire ship over the 1MC exists? Professor Mark Nevitt. I think that slippery slope is a good way to describe it. We're talking about prayer in at the Naval Academy or any governmental entity. It could be Congress, could be the Air Force Academy, could be the West Point. So the Naval Academy does have a, a new time prayer. And the First Amendment, as we're all aware, says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So the question, I think, is one, is is this something, the New Time Prayer, is this an invitation or is this a mandatory requirement? Number two, is this related to a precise religion? Is it related to Catholicism, Judaism, Islam, fill in the blank, or is it more non-denominational and uh, broadly speaking? And so I think when you look at the case law on this, the closer it is to being truly voluntary. So if a midshipman did not want to participate in the, in the prayer, if the chaplain at the noontime prayer invited you to participate, then um, that's going to be less likely to run to follow the First Amendment. If it's more generic and doesn't speak to specific faiths or denominations, that's going to be less likely to be an establishment clause of violation. Um, and it should be made clear that if a midshipman did not want to participate in bowing his or her head, you know, that's ultimately okay. And so if you were to uh, try to penalize or punish the midshipman for that, that I think would not pass First Amendment muster. I, I will say that, you know, the, the military has an important role in the Naval Academy to uh, develop midshipmen morally, mentally, and physically. You know, one could 
you know, we, we've historically have had chaplains. Um, the Congress has chaplains. The military's had chaplains. And so there's a spiritual aspect, I think, to that that we should not be completely blind to. That's part of the development of the officer. But so the more you make it truly voluntary and more of an invitation and more, you know, non-denominational, the, the closer it is to pass just the spiritual development of the midshipman. We turn back to Lieutenant Commander Jarzik for another perspective. However, that clause does not prohibit the government from doing things in support of religion, uh, basically to support the free exercise clause. So an example of that would be um, the fact that we have a chaplain's corps, right? Uh, Chaplains in the military. They did make a decision about chaplains in federal prisons. And what they came down is, hey, the government has kind of limited your ability to have free exercise of your faith by locking you up in prison. Analogously, right, that seaman who's underway on month 10 of deployment has been locked up by Uncle Sam and is in some ways limited in his ability to exercise his religious faith. He can't go to his, you know, his civilian place of worship as he normally would. So when the government does things to sort of fix that problem that they have they themselves have created, right? I took you away from your home faith. Now I'm giving you a a religious life program on board the ship so you can continue exercising. The courts have said that that is generally okay. So that's kind of point the first. The The establishment clause does not mean the government can never do anything with regard to religion. Obviously, I think most folks generally know that the courts have said, hey, Public school prayer in elementary school is a no-go. That is not going to be constitutional, and it runs afoul of the Establishment Clause. But when it comes to outside of that like elementary school context, we don't definitively have the answer on whether or not prayer in the military services is constitutional or not. Basically, courts haven't answered the question. No one has asked them to yet. When we were when we're talking about similar issues, there is a case out there uh, called Town of Greece versus Galloway, and in that case, what they were looking at was this legislative prayer. So basically, at the beginning of the either state or city legislative session, uh, the council members would say a prayer, and it was fairly secular in nation, nature. They'd been doing it for like a hundred years or something like that, and the court concluded that that was not government actors establishing religion. And some of the factors, some of the things that were important to them making that decision was that the participants were all adults, that it was rooted in tradition, and that there was not a um, like a coercive aspect to it, right? They were not trying to convert folks to a particular faith. Um, and in part, some of that was due to the fact that they were adult members of this legislative body. The text of the First Amendment is absolute. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. We've broken down how the government cannot establish any form of state religion, and even examined that clause in conjunction with the UCMJ. Now let's shift to the free exercise clause. What are the limitations of free exercise for all U.S. citizens? Does the state ever have the right to prohibit or prevent an individual's personal religious practice? 
Well, the the interesting thing is, does it can it really mean that? And what if the exercise of my religion involves human sacrifice? Well, of course, I don't get to say the First Amendment protects my right to sacrifice other human beings. So there are always going to be some kind of limits on what free exercise is. And the hard part is figuring out exactly what uh, what those limits are. Uh, now, the, the kind of background question is, um, which beliefs of mine are my religious beliefs? What is my religion? Um, and understandably, a secular Supreme Court is not going to want to wade into theological debates. It's certainly never going to say whether somebody's religious beliefs are true or false, because uh, you know that's not for human beings to decide. And uh, that's an issue that comes up every so often uh, when, especially with minority religions. So let's uh, say religion that only has a uh, hundred people in it and just started a couple of months ago. Well, uh, they say that they have these beliefs and they have these practices. Is the Supreme Court going to step in and say, uh, well, actually not. I mean, this is just a cult. Well, they're, they're not going to do that. And even with established religions, the court will not wade into debate. So there was a really interesting case um, in, I think it was 1960, involving a Jehovah's Witness who uh, was working as a you know a sheet metal plant, and uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are pacifists. Uh, he decided that it was against his religion to manufacture tank turrets, and he got laid off from his job because he wouldn't do it, and uh, and was filing for workers' compensation. And uh, during the the trial, um, some other Jehovah's Witnesses said, "Well, that actually isn't part of our religion." Uh, he got our religion wrong. And the Supreme Court said, uh, we're not going to take sides about that. It may not be the official religion, but it's his religious belief. Uh, we've got every reason to believe that it's sincere. So anything goes for religious beliefs. And that turns out to be really significant if um, you know, religious beliefs are putting you uh, in opposition to some other law. So at this point, let's just go back to, uh, well, you know, what if my what if my religious practice involves human sacrifice? Well, then I am running up against the law against murder. Well, what if it involves animal sacrifice, as uh, some voodoo religions do? Uh, well, that might run up against laws against animal cruelty. What about uh, uh, Native Americans, who part of whose religious right was smoking peyote, which is a controlled substance. Well, there was a case uh, that came before the Supreme Court uh, that addressed that. And there, the Supreme Court said, if, it, if the, the religious practice violates generally applicable law, uh, the religious practice has to give way. And that caused a tremendous uproar. Uh, a lot of religious groups were very angry. And Congress passed a law to try to undo that Supreme Court decision. Uh, it's called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA. And it says that if the state wants to pass a law that substantially burdens somebody's practice of religion, it has to have a really compelling reason. 
So just go back to my imaginary case of human sacrifice. Well, there's a compelling reason to not allow murder. Arguably, there's a compelling reason not to allow uh, animal cruelty. So there, it would be possible to override free exercise. But in other cases, it really uh, it really gets much more difficult to decide. Um, the smoking peyote was a victimless crime, so it's not inflicting harms on anyone else. And if that's a, if that's central to religious practice, then uh, it looks as though um, under RIFRA, the state has to have a really compelling reason to tell these people that you can't smoke peyote, and the state would probably lose. Um, free exercise would prevail. How does the dynamic of free exercise change between private citizens and private companies? Uh, the Baker's case, a uh, masterpiece cake shop, um, and it involved a Colorado baker who, for religious reasons, did not want to bake a wedding cake for uh, a same-sex marriage. And you know, it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court sent it back to the lower courts, and it's bouncing around in the lower courts right now. Now, for the Colorado baker, so we, you know, we actually don't, don't know how this is going to work out. But on the one side is the Colorado baker who says, uh, uh, I'm not inflicting harm on this couple. They can get their cake from another baker. But uh, to me, it would be a violation of my, my free expression right and my religious freedom if I had to bake a cake celebrating something that my religion tells me is wrong. In the same way, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bake a cake for a white supremacist group celebration. It was one of the arguments that he made. And it looks like uh, he's just asking for a, what's called a, you know, a conscience exception, a conscience opt-out. On the other side, He's open to the public, and the public is governed by anti-discrimination law, so businesses uh, that, that deal with the public. So if he had said, well, I won't bake cakes for African-Americans, or I won't bake cakes for Hindus, that would be discrimination. That would violate the law. And the Colorado law includes uh, gender identity based uh, discrimination as well. So here, the, and if you were going to make their case, they would say this is unlawful discrimination, just like if the baker had been saying, I won't serve black people. Uh, and just to complicate it, suppose that uh, somebody who just wants to engage in discrimination and says, uh, well, under my religion, uh, the races aren't created equal. Well, the court's not going to jump in and say, no, that's not your religion. So it would actually give anybody with a religious claim a veto over anti-discrimination law. And that's the free exercise clash we're seeing right now. Dr. Luban explains the limitations of free exercise for all citizens. How can the free exercise clause be understood by military members? The military is going to have more deference from the courts when they try to do things that in some way may inhibit your religious exercise. Um, this is largely going to be dictated by the military's needs for mission accomplishment 
and for good odor and discipline. So a really famous case in this area is a case called Goldman versus Weinberger. And in that case, it involved uh, an Air Force officer, a Jewish Air Force officer, who wanted to wear his traditional head covering uh, inside and outside. And for several years, uh, he had done this and no one had really said anything about it until one day somebody decided to say something about it. And um, then the court was asked, hey, does the Air Force have the right to limit his exercise of his religious observance um, by telling him he cannot wear his traditional head covering? And the court in that case in 1986 said, well, yeah, um, the military's interest in uniformity, even just like generic uniform regulations, and therefore making sure that we are uncovered indoors unless you know, you're on watch, trumped this individual's uh, free exercise interest. So he lost that case. Now, interestingly, that's an occasion where then Congress sort of stepped in and said, oh, we don't like that answer. That makes us unhappy. So kind of immediately after that case, Congress then changed the rules, um, the regulations as applied to the military to permit greater freedom for deviations for like uniform regulations, which is why service members now can submit um, different requests for religious accommodation for various uh, religiously required head coverings. Um, and I think facial hair in some of the branches, you have the ability to request permission to wear. Shaving is is maybe not um, any more pressing than a religious head covering. And in fact, right, we accommodate a number of individuals with medical requirements, right? No, sh no shave tits exist in the fleet for folks with a medical condition that, that makes it very hard to shave. Um, and so we do have folks, you will see folks uh, throughout the fleet sometimes with a, a little bit of stubble for that reason. Um, and so in terms of uniformity, if the service chose to grant your religious accommodation and the legislation that Congress gave was not like demanding. It did not demand the services uh, always grant permission to wear a head covering or not shave, but that they should be sort of more uh, willing to look at those requests. But where we're really going to see the issue with shaving is when it gets in the way of mission readiness. So if you're an aviator and I need you to be able to have a good seal on your face with some piece of equipment, or if you're attached to a ship and I need you to be able to have a good seal with firefighting equipment and your religious, uh, your religiously required facial hair is going to get in the way of that mission readiness, well, then the military is going to win every single time. And you're going to have to square that however you do, whether that's um, choosing to shave and to limit your own exercise, or whether it's deciding the service is, not, is no longer compatible for you. The decision to abridge or prohibit a service member's ability to free exercise is a big decision to make. Who makes these decisions, and how should we understand what that means for us as officers? Right, excellent question. Any of us exercising our capacity as leaders up chain from another individual, our Uncle Sam for that purpose. So if I'm your, your divo and I'm telling you to shave, even though um, you know, you've got this religious uh, exemption request that you're trying to submit or whatever, I'm, I'm acting as Uncle Sam in that shoe or in that, in that position, and that can be challenged. Colonel Christopher Shaw, United States Marine Corps. Currently, I'm serving as the Staff Judge Advocate for Marine Corps Combat Development Command. Are there any uh, additional restrictions to individuals' rights in combat situations? 
the reality is, is whether it's combat or whether it's in peacetime, uh, there are restrictions to individuals' uh, constitutional rights. And we can look at that, uh, whether it's restrictions on the freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of association, all those and, you know, freedom to bear arms um, are restricted when you're in the military and whether that's in a combat situation or in a, in a non-combat situation. Simply being in the service means that you, uh, you lose some of your rights. Some of your rights are abridged. Um, and certainly, uh, being under the control of the military, you're granted certain authority. Uh, some of those authorities, again, include the ability to um, to kill if that's necessary, and it's and it's taken place under the rules of engagement. Uh, and, and certainly, the ability to detain folks, uh, the ability to you know quote unquote uh, trespass into other countries, um, you know, certainly uh, because you're working under the, thir- on the, under the authority of the United States government, under the authority of the United Nations, under the authority of even a foreign com- country that's inviting you in, you have, you have additional authority, additional rights, but then you, you lose some as well. Oftentimes what happens, particularly if there's a new issue, it's going to be the, the sergeants or it's going to be the lieutenants at, on the deck plates, the company commanders, the battalion commanders that are going to make the first, the first order, the first uh, determination that a certain right needs to be abridged. But eventually what, what occurs is that these issues will bubble up to higher and higher levels. And if there ultimately is a policy, policy at the service level, policy at the DOD level, uh, policy from POTUS with regard to what one can do and what one cannot do. And then at times those policies are tested. They're tested at court martials or they're tested in federal court and ultimately they may go to the Supreme Court. So as an example, you know, who can serve, like who can even serve in the military? So certainly Congress in the 90s affirmatively stated that women could not serve in combat units, ground combat units below the regimental level. So that was a congressional law. There were court cases that tried to test that. And ultimately with a change of administration, that law was changed and policy uh, followed where women could serve uh, in combat roles. And again, women have been serving in combat throughout our history, um, but uh, the, the actual policy, United States policy, to allow them to serve in ground combat, in combat units, uh, was changed um, in, the, in the mid, you know, 20, 2016, 2013, 2016 uh, timeframe. So, so, so uh, there are freedoms that are abridged, but those freedoms are usually, um, when they are abridged, uh, they'll be tested. So certainly another example 
would be if a marine or sailor uh, wants to wants to grow his hair in a certain way, uh, whether it's dreadlocks or whether it's braids or whether he just wants to have long flowing hair. Again, there's there's policy, there's there's regulations uh, that that talk to you how you can how you can wear your hair, and and believe it or not, I mean the policy of of the way Marines can wear their hair is different than the policy of the way uh, Navy folks can wear their hair. So those are done in at the at the the service level, and and certainly if somebody has a problem with it, they can test it. They can test it in the court, but the court oftentimes gives significant deference uh, to the military to implement its policies because, again, the goal is and the assumption is that the policies that we have in place will maintain our discipline, will maintain our efficiency so we can better protect the nation. Thanks for listening to the Bill of Rights podcast from the Stockdale Center at the United States Naval Academy. This is a series of presentations that covers the interconnections between the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and how the Uniform Code of Military Justice relates to each other. Tune in for the rest of the series covering freedoms, criminal procedure, courts, trials, and enumerated rights, among other things. You raised your hand in an oath to the Constitution the first day you got here. Make sure you know what it means. These podcasts are brought to you by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. I'm Michael Sears, the Director of Leadership Innovation, and I'm with my partner, Ensign Aiden Riley. We wrote, edited, and produced this series. would also like to thank our guests, Professor Mark Nevitt, Professor Jeff McCreese, Professor Mary DeCritico, Professor Brielle Harbin, Professor David Luban, Professor Mitt Regan, Professor Jeff Kossif, Lieutenant Commander Elizabeth Jarzik and Colonel Christopher Shaw, United States Marine Corps. Music by Exodus, the original motion picture soundtrack composed by Ernest Gold. Amazing Grace, performed by Pipers of the World. Eternal Father, Strong to Save, the Navy Hymn, performed by the U.S. Navy Band Sea Chanters. Luigi Baccarini, Night Music of the Streets of Madrid, Passe Calais. Music from Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. The U.S. Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. Words by James Madison and the 55 founding fathers who started this conversation. And we are happy they did.